This episode is brought to you by the insurance agent I use for my own business, Doug Lynch, and his broker, Tracy Deerfelt, with the Nationwide Contractors Alliance. In the last year, I got to know Doug and Tracy as they were consulting for me on some questions I had for my own company. And after more than a decade in the business, I can confidently say I didn't even understand half the equation when it comes to general liability insurance. I'm confident, actually, that very few builders do. I had some big gaps in my understanding and even more in my coverage. Now, this is a risk-heavy business, and you can't leave everything you've built, no pun intended, to chance. Make sure you have good protection. Make sure you have reliable protection, and make sure the agents you work with have your back. Doug and Tracy are by far the best I've found in the business, or I wouldn't use them myself. They assessed my particular business, built me a customized plan around it, and now, of course, I sleep better at night as a result. Visit douglaslynch.com and nwcalliance.com to learn more about how insurance and other solutions can really work for builders. Well, I'm excited because we've got David Gerstel back on the show today. David's been a guest three times already for a, a series that we did over a year ago. It was a really highly rated series for us. David's also one of my, personally one of my favorite guests that we have on the show because in our conversations off the air, he really challenges me in, in my thinking. Um, and in fact, I know that a lot of you all have, have said the same after reading one of his books that he's helped shape your understanding and, and practice that you employ in your own business. Now, David's a best-selling author. His most recent book is Nail Your Numbers, a path to skilled construction, estimating, and bidding. David also is a well-known speaker and travels across the country for that. He is um, perhaps as interesting as just about anything else I could say about him. Somebody who is a, a builder that achieved financial freedom at a very, very young age. So because of that, he's, he's a real model, at least for, I think, a lot of us to follow and to listen to what he has to say. So that's actually the topic of today's episode. We want to talk about uh, achieving financial freedom uh, or finding financial freedom in this business, business that is difficult to, uh, to navigate, we all know. So um, I think you guys are going to enjoy this. David always has some, some very well-developed ideas, and uh, today is no different. So enjoy the episode. David, we're back. Episode number four together, which I'm excited about. It's been, I'm guessing... You know, time gets away from you. I'm guessing over a year, maybe maybe pushing a year and a half since we've we've really talked. So I got to first start this out by hearing what you've been up to over the last year. Well, I got my my book Nail Your Numbers published. It's Nail Your Numbers: A Path to Skilled Construction, Estimating, and Bidding. I published it. I held my breath. And lo and behold, it turned into a Amazon bestseller. It got a tremendous review in Journal of Light Construction, which gave it a real boost. And I'm thrilled about that. Um, 
with the book complete, I basically spent my time writing a series of articles for Journal of Light Construction, 10 of them, I think, maybe 11. But um, I, put, I got my tools out and started building stuff on my own properties. I don't build for clients anymore. Um, my great pride and joy was building a, um, setting up three-way switches for the uh, outdoor lights that lead us down the pathway to our home. Uh, one switch sits embedded in a recycled, re salvaged, beautiful old eight by eight redwood post up at the head of the walkway. And the other one sits uh, in a switch box in the hallway, in the entry hallway. And that about sums it up. About, um, I was very lucky, about four weeks ago, just as it, real, as, I, as it dawned on me that we got a shelter in place, and as the shelter in place order came down, I started a new book. I don't quite know what the title is going to be yet. It's going to have the word profit in it. The subtitle is A, Pro a, a Construction Pro's Path to Financial Freedom. I've been working on that hard. The subject has really taken a hold of me. I mean, it's a, it's a subject which has always had a hold on me, but I'm excited now about the book. And after getting a, a, up a little headway up, up and running, I'm enjoying the research, thrilled with my new note-taking procedure, which is now digital instead of scrawling by hand on slips of paper. And so I'm, you know, heading down the takeoff strip with that book. It'd probably be a couple of years for until it's out, but essentially it's very different from my other books. It's, it's going to be a lot less of a how-to book, much more of a, a book about vision and opportunity and possibility. But I think builders who will put in the hard work of learning to run their companies, small or medium-sized or large, well, have exceptional opportunities to attain financial freedom. That's something very different from financial independence, which we could get into if you like, but, and financial freedom is a wonderful thing. I mean, I've had it at a modest level since I was in my mid thirties. I've got it at a remarkable level now and I love it. Um, it doesn't remove responsibility from life. Thank God. Um, you still got to know how to have fun. You still got to know how to give to other people. You still have to know how to invest and manage your investments, but it's just wonderful getting up in the morning and knowing you can do whatever you want to do. Well, and that's something that you talked about on our previous episodes that our our audience, our builders out there really enjoyed hearing something we don't talk about that much. And that's really the topic for today's conversation. I want to, I do want to dive into. So okay. you mentioned about this difference between financial independence and financial freedom. Let's start there and want to hear your perspective on how those two are different. Okay. Let, let me just preface the answer by saying we're going to be talking today about a lot of ideas I'm working on, and I would be delighted to hear from anybody via my website who wants to say, Dave, I think you got it wrong there, or Dave, I think you can sharpen that idea up by taking into consideration this perspective, because these are ideas in, in progress. My, my book, Nail Your Numbers, about estimating and bidding, I'm pretty confident of the ideas and the process presented there. Not to say it's the only process that one can use, but I know it's strong and solid. The ideas we're gonna to discuss today are more works in progress. Okay, here's what I've noticed about people who get involved in investing. Um, they tend to get 
focused on piling up as much wealth as they can. And often the wealth that they pile up is of a complex nature. It imprisons them. They become, um, they're, they're in a position where they get up in the morning. What they must do immediately is go tend to, monitor, adjust, take care of their investments. They may have a broad range of investments, maybe very uh, large stock and bond portfolios and complex stock and bond portfolios, stock and bond portfolios full of individual equities, which means that every company, every company that they own has to be monitored to make sure that it's doing well enough so that the holder can be justified in holding on to the position, as it's called. Um, that's not financial freedom. That's financial independence because you don't have to work for somebody else. You work for yourself. You're tending to your own wealth, your holdings, your real estate holdings, your stock and bond portfolio, your gold and silver positions, but it's not freedom. Financial freedom is different in this way. When you, as you begin to develop your investments, you focused on a creating investments which produce cash flow, not necessarily the largest promise of growth. Let me be specific there. For example, when you begin to build your equity portfolio, you focused on large cap value stocks because they produce cash flow in the form of dividends. Now, large cap value stocks don't grow at nearly the rate as other kinds of stocks do. Um, small cap stocks grow at a much faster rate. Um, I think the way to own stocks for us, um, you know, lay people who are not Warren Buffett is to own index funds with very low management fees, not to own individual stocks. The large cap stocks tend to grow at a average annual rate of about 9.9% and their actual compound rate of growth is just slightly under that. Small cap stocks grow at about, well, since 1970, at a, until the turndown that we had, you know, two months ago, at the astonishing rate of 15% a year. But they don't produce any dividends, so there's no cash flow. So they don't really give you financial freedom. To achieve financial freedom, you need investments which produce cash flow. I'll, I'll tell you what I chose in my own case. Um, I started with uh, an investment property, a small house, and on a studio apartment above two garages, which I built myself out of my savings. And I've never, I never used debt. Now, that's my particular preference. Some people advise the use of debt and leverage, not my cup of tea. Once I had that property built, I was financially free because I didn't have to work anymore. Now, I chose to work because I love to work and I love to build and write. And that's what I do. Um, after I had that property built, I began to build my equity portfolio. And I started with value stocks, with the value index fund at Vanguard specifically, because I wanted to build more cash flow to enhance that freedom of movement. Um, cash flowing assets give you freedom. Piles of wealth, which do not produce cash flow, which have to be juggled and bought and sold to maintain asset value do not give you freedom. That's my nutshell view of it. I'll stop there because maybe you want to push me one direction or the other.
no, it actually brings up some, um, some things I learned a long, long time ago, whenever I, I was, uh, chartered or a CFA charter holder. Cause I studied this for, for years and years. I thought I was going to go be a hedge fund manager in New York. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, after, after a master's degree and three years of intensive studies in my early, early twenties, I walked out of my final exam and this is like a, um, it, a lot of people probably don't know what the CFA charter is. It's, it's a, a, a really distinguished, um, thing in the, in the, investment industry. And yeah, yeah. so I got it and I thought, all right, this is good. This is my ticket to, to New York. And I walked out of the exam and at the time I didn't know it, I'd actually passed. Um, but I remember thinking, wow, I, all of this knowledge, and I still don't know if somebody brought me a hundred million dollars to invest right now that I, that I would be able to achieve for them what, what we call alpha, which is, which is that, um, that return up, you know, above, above kind of your, your market rate. Yep. Um, and, uh, and it was a really disappointing moment <laughs> in my life. And, and that was, but you know what, that was kind of my impetus to look for uh, real estate and to get into real estate development, because I realized that this is an industry where you can achieve, um, uh, outsized, I mean, there's tons of risk, but you can achieve outsized returns for the liquidity premiums and other and information premiums, et cetera. Um, but anyway, all that to say that, uh, I completely agree with you that the, you know, cash flow is truly the, the ultimate cash is the ultimate, um, driver of a value of an asset. So yes, it doesn't matter how much it, it, it grows. I mean, that, that plays into it, but ultimately it comes down to when you run valuation analyses, it's always based on, on, uh, cash flow, discounted cash flow, et cetera. That's what ultimately yep. matters. So I, that's, that's a very long winded story, um, to just simply reinforce what you're saying. Well, that's, that's my take. And I, I like freedom. Um, I'm not interested in being filthy rich. Uh, some people would look at my balance sheet and say, you're disgustingly rich, but I don't, I don't look at the asset values. I, I, I like the analogy of the farm. I want a farm with a happy dairy herd that, you know, is producing milk every day and crops that are growing vigorously that I can sell. And I don't really care whether the farm can be sold for a million dollars one year and half that the next year and twice that the third year. What matters is, that this farm, which let's call it a subsistence farm, uh, can support myself and my family at doing what we want to do. That's, that's freedom. And that my book, my new book is going to be about achieving financial freedom. It's not going to be about getting to be the richest guy in town. Um, I think the, the purpose of, you know, achieving financial freedom is so that you can go ahead and, and, and follow what, go in the direction of what you consider life's highest purposes. Um, so there you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, I, I have some very specific ideas about how you create a construction company that can get you in that direction. You're reading my yeah. mind. That was my, so I want to, <laughs> okay. I want to take the high level conversation. Let's drill down now to builders. How does okay. this, how does this apply to us? What can we do? What, what's, what's our roadmap to financial freedom? Well, you know, one thing I'm going to say is that I, I think the listeners, if it's, if they're going to hear this, you know, during the, 
what our California governor pleasantly calls the present moment, meaning this immense crisis that the coronavirus has pushed us into. Um, one thing listeners are going to be wanting to know is how long is it going to last and what can I do to survive it? Um, and I don't know how long it's going to last for sure. But I also think that um, the companies that will, what you can do to survive it are things that you should have done already. If you're in a crisis and you've got a company which is not crisis resistant, the chances of adjusting quickly enough to survive are moderate at best. And the chances of surviving with a lot of pain are pretty high. And the chances of not surviving at all are pretty high. I, I'm, I'm what I call an overhead vigilante. Um, I'm ultra frugal. I do not use debt. I never have. I had, a, I had to take out a mortgage on my home when I bought it. Um, my, my, my wife and I had no idea what we were doing then, except we wanted a house. And we found a beautiful little college, cottage that we fell in love with, and we're still in love with it. We still live here four decades later. Interest rates at the time were 14% for mortgages. Um, I didn't know that was high. That's how much I knew about money. We got a mortgage. We had to. We didn't have the entire purchase price. Now, it turns out that being interest rates being that high was a blessing for us because the sales price was very low. We got the house. I hated the idea of having a debt. I couldn't stand it. I didn't know the debt interest was high. That's not what motiva motivated me to pay off the mortgage. What motivated me was my hatred of debt, instinctive hatred of having shackles on my ankles, of being beholden to other people. So I rolled up my shirt sleeves and I had that mortgage paid off in 11 months. That was, it was a totally instinctual move. But in retrospect, it was an excellent move. And I now understand why, because I've studied investment a lot. It was an excellent move, first of all, because I essentially bought a bond paying 14%, except I did it in reverse. And that's a heck of a good investment. You don't find bonds lying around uh, offering 14% indefinitely uh, very often. The second reason it was a good move is it, it lowered our personal overhead to a very, very low level. And we're frugal. And that meant that money we made, a great, a very large percentage of the money we made, probably about 80% after I had my construction company up and running, could go into other investments. I learned how to make other investments. I ran my construction company with the same vigilant eye on overhead that I approached my, my, our personal lifestyle. I'm very lucky. I've got a wife who's frugal also. She hates wasting money. Um, and we just don't do it. And we buy stuff, we, but we buy good stuff that's gonna last. We buy great food that's gonna keep us healthy. We don't buy frivolously or impulsively. We don't get new cars because our vanity demands it. We live frugally. I love frugality. I think it's a spiritual calling. Um, so I organized and ran my construction company according to those same values, frugality and low overhead. Um, overhead for a construction company can be very, very low. If you like, I'll take a moment here and tell you contrasting stories about two builders, one of whom followed what I call the Nari model, which is a very high overhead model, and the other who followed a model 
well, I, we don't have to name for it. We'll just say it's, you know, more like the one I prefer. Shall I just go with that for a minute? Yeah. Okay. So these two guys are the same age. They went to the same university. Um, they graduated about the same time. Or I think actually one of them didn't graduate. The other did, but that doesn't matter. Um, they're both smart guys. One of them got involved in Nari, uh, and he learned how to run a construction company, a remodeling company, via the Nari channels. Now, Nari is a good organization. You, there's a lot there you can learn about business. But Nari tends to encourage a high overhead model, which requires very high gross profit margins on jobs, a minimum of 35% to be viable. He followed that model, and he paid attention to his accountant. His accountant gave him the dumbest advice I've ever heard anybody give a business person. And she told him, you know, you don't have a real business if you're working out of your home. So accountants are terrible people to get uh, business advice from and investment advice from generally. There are some exceptions, I'm sure, but I've never met one. <laughs> I don't know. Not where you go. You go to them for tax, tax services, not for business advice not for investment advice. So he and his wife proceed to buy a rather expensive property and they install this elaborate office in it with his, with his elaborate staff. Um, the office gets very fancy because they hit a hard spot in the economy and they want to keep their crew busy. So they really doll the office up and it's quite lovely. I must say a beautiful flooring and, Lots of nice little office cubicles and a fancy conference room where you can bring clients and a great big desk in the entry hall where a receptionist sits. And they loaded this fancy building up with staff, office manager, production manager, estimator, uh, frequently an accountant uh, coming in to help them navigate the very expensive complex software that they had purchased. Now, mind you, both the man and his wife are working in the company full-time already. And on top of that, they're adding five other people. And basically, they've got that in order to run a little three or four crew company. So a couple of miles north of them, there's this other guy who's a builder, whom I happen to know pretty well. And I watched the way he built his company. He built for himself an office in his backyard, which is about 80 square feet. He built it out of scrap material that he salvaged off his jobs. It's lovely, by the way. He's very artistic, so it's beautiful. He's got one wall paneled in plaster lath, and he's made a gorgeous tapestry out of that. There's room enough in his office for himself and a, uh, a person who comes in to do accounting chores for him for about, I think he's at about 12 to 16 hours a month. That's it. <clears throat> Now, he also ran basically three crews, sometimes four jobs running because one job was wrapping up, sometimes two really big jobs with, you know, a smaller job wrapping up. The two guys did about the same volume of work. The one of them aimed for uh, gross profit margins in the 38% range. The other, he really didn't like to charge that much. He felt he wanted, his, his, he wanted to be a really good deal for his clients. And he told them so. He told, he'd tell them, I'm a good deal, and here's why. I've got extremely low overhead. 
So I can charge you gross profit margins on the order of 28%, which is 10% below the going rate. And by the way, I still make a lot more money than those guys because my overhead is so tight, I've actually got bigger profit margins for them. Hear that. Lower overhead, more room for profit margin. Let's say your gross profit margins can be 35%. And your overhead, which is, um, is going to be 15%. Well, that leaves you 20% for profit and owner's pay. Now, supposing you're, you're, you're going to instead aim for a gross profit margin of 28%, but your overhead, I'm talking now about what I call out-of-pocket overhead, actual you know, cash out-of-pocket, is 1.5%. Well, that leaves you, what is it, uh, tw 27 and a half, no, 28.5% for profit and owner's pay. Who's got the better company going? Who's going to make more money? the guy with a low overhead operation. Now, let me slip something in here. Fred Trump. Now, he, he's the Trump who actually made the money that the Trump organization has. Donald, bless his soul, managed actually in real dollar terms to lose a lot of the money his dad had passed on to him until he learned how to be a, a media star. He was very good at being a media star. He was not a very good businessman. And he managed to, in real dollar terms, to lose a good deal of the money his dad built up. Donald Trump, the dad, ran a huge property management firm with, I've lost track of the number of units they had, but it's on the order of 10,000. And he did it out of a 100-square-foot office with one helper. I just mentioned that to illustrate that the possibilities of running on very low overhead are real. And if you do, that means that... Once you're a well-established builder who's competing with the best guys around town, all of whom are members of NARI, all of whom are aiming for 35% or higher gross profit margin. In fact, these days, in the boom economy, which just ended, of course, um, a lot of guys are aiming for 45%. Well, if, you're, if you've got this very compact operation and you're the competitor to these guys and you go in and say, you know, I, I can do your job for a 35% gross profit margin, you're going to do awfully well because you're going to have 33% left to divide between owner's pay and profit. I've been talking to some of these 44% gross profit margin guys. Their profit margin is 12%. Now, they also take a big owner's draw. So they're probably, you know, between owner's draw and profit margin, they're maybe at 20%. But you can beat the pass off of them with a very low overhead operation. And here's the other advantage of it. The, the other, I notice I'm just wiggling my finger here in the air like I'm a school teacher and somebody can see me, <laughs> but they can't. But I'm trying to drive this point home to the people who can't see me. Here's the other great thing about the low overhead operation. It gets through the big downturns much more readily. If you're having, if you've got a high overhead operation and you've got a lot of out of cash costs, out of pocket cash costs that you have to meet, bills you have to pay, when the economy suddenly bolts downward, paying those bills can be very burdensome, very, very stressful. Um, if you've got rent, if you've got a mortgage, if you've got very expensive software that you have to subscribe to, and so on and so on, on down a very long list, then when the downturn comes, you're in pain. And here's something to remember about downturns. When recessions hit the the overall economy, depression hits the construction economy. 
we'll see. I'm, I'm always interested when we go into a recession to see who's going to survive and who's not going to make it through. Warren Buffett likes, likes to say, when the tide goes out, you can see who's naked. <laughs> That's true. And the tide's been in. And, you know, I've seen, you know, guys who are look to be like they're real dolled up. They're driving brand new $65,000 pickup trucks. They've got these fancy offices. They bought themselves a big home with a big mortgage on it. Thinking that was smart because they could write it right off the interest. Well, that's what we can see. That's what we see, you know, from their neck up. When the tide goes out, we'll see what they're wearing from the neck down. I can tell you that from past experience, my expectation is we'll see that a lot of them aren't wearing much and they're going to be in horrible pain. A lot of them are going to lose their companies and have to start over. They're going to lose their homes. I mean, you've had guys on this show, whose names I'm not going to mention, who went the high overhead route to start out with, and they ended up losing their companies, their office, their home, and their marriage. And one of them that I know of has changed tunes. He's now a, a low overhead guy. And by that, I mean a guy who can keep his business intact on very, very low out-of-pocket overhead. Very low. He's like the guy with a 100-square-foot shop office in his backyard that he built out of scrap materials. That guy, when work just disappears, he doesn't have to take jobs at excessively tight bid levels and pray that he will somehow come out of the job with a gain instead of a loss. He just doesn't take, he doesn't have to take work because yeah. he has no bills to pay. I'm going to, I'm going to play the pessimistic role for a second. Good. But good. I, one of the, my selling points to clients. So let me, let me first say this. I'm taking devil's advocate position, but one of my sales points to our clients is that we have, we are a lean, low overhead company. All right. So let me, let me at least set the context with that before I, okay. I do this. All right. Okay. For me, I feel like there is only, there's, there's a, a kind of a brick wall you hit in terms of what you can cut and then what things are holy that you don't, you, you can't really touch, but I, I don't want to muddy the waters by mentioning them myself first. I'd be interested to hear first, maybe what you believe are those, are those overhead expenses that um, should be on the chopping block. You and I've already talked about this on, on, to some extent. So I know, you know, we can lead with the easy one office, you know, fancy offices and fancy trucks. Obviously I'm with you. I, you and I agree. Those should be on the, on the chopping block. Um, quick, a quick antidote. I have got a client who knock on wood, I think we're going to sign a contract with, I'm not sure. Um, but he was interviewing a few builders and he told me after he'd interviewed a few, he said, you know, I walked in into one builder's office and it was, you know, marble floors and huge chandelier when I walked in and I thought, well, I know who's going to be paying for, for this. If I That's sign a, a contract, client. yeah, he, he's a very successful guy out, out of, uh, out of Canada. Yeah. And, uh, and so anyway, um, I, I mentioned that just because, uh, um, <laughs> that's there's sales points in this there's sales and marketing value that somebody can attain from this let's leave that out of the conversation for now what are the what are the easy things that should be on the chopping block i'm gonna answer a question you didn't ask to begin with and then i'll get to the chopping block um 
You know, I'm always fascinated that guys think that clients are going to be impressed by these very, this obvious high overhead load they're carrying. I mean, I'm thinking if your clients are impressed by that, you got some dumb people for clients. Uh, maybe clients are impressed. Maybe they sign contractors up because they say, oh, um, this guy has really high overhead. So 50% of every dollar I spend with him is going to go to pay his overhead. I mean, there are companies which provide, which have 50% gross profit margins, meaning that half of every dollar the client spends with them is going to be spent for the owner's draw and the overhead. Maybe there are clients who love that, who want, who want half of their dollar going into the contractor's overhead. I find that inconceivable, but maybe that's the way it is. Um, I have a, I have a, a builder friend. He did pretty well as a builder. He's retired recently, and I think he's okay in retirement. Um, he once bought a very fancy Mercedes, brand new. And I, I asked him, Mike, what the hell did you do that for? I mean, that's, you know, you know how much money you could make? We were pretty young at the time. I said, you know how much money that you would have made if you'd put that in a, in a, in a small cap index fund and held, held on to it for the next 25 years? Why, why do you want that car? I, and he said, well, because, um, you know, when I drive up to the homes of my wealthy clients, I think they're going to see this car and think, now there's a builder who's one of the club. He's one of my club, so I'm going to hire him. Uh, about two years later, the Mercedes disappeared, and Mike was driving around in a well-kept used Jeep. And I don't think it was because he couldn't afford the Mercedes at that point. I think it was because he decided, uh, you know, maybe this it's not such a good idea to drive up to a client's house in a $150,000 car. <laughs> I've never asked him about this. i got to remember to ask him about that. I never followed up with him. So that brings us to the chopping block. Uh, I'd rather approach it this way. I mean, stuff you never got in the chopping block in the full, first place. If you're still driving towards financial freedom. Now, when you're there, when you're when your income is eight times your basic living expenses, which is what, to my way of thinking, is full financial, the level at which you reach full financial freedom. If you want to take some of the spare income and buy yourself the Mercedes, all power to you. I mean, I, I personally don't, wouldn't care to do that because I don't want to pollute the air driving around an eight-cylinder Mercedes. I mean, I'm not interested in, in stuff, to tell you the truth. I might buy a really good tennis racket or two or join the, a better tennis club. I wouldn't buy the Mercedes. But if that's what rocks your boat, do it. If, if what rocks your boat is a boat, is a boat, get one. When you're building up toward financial freedom, though, you don't want that kind of overhead to get on the chopping block in the first place. Um, if you're the kind of guy who's tried this Nari approach with the big fancy office and a big pickup truck and all kinds of elaborate marketing programs. I guess just about everything has to be knocked off the block. I, I'm realizing I may not be that qualified to answer the question. What I'm good at is not letting stuff on the chopping block in the first place. I think if, if, if you're going to put anything on the chopping block, then you have to really determine if, if, if your goal is financial freedom, when you take on a new overhead item, you really need to monitor it carefully and make sure it is producing profit well in excess of what it is costing you. I got to tell you a story here. Years ago, I read an article by uh, the founder 
of a very high, highly regarded, very well-known, and in many ways deservedly well-known, builders peer-to-peer uh, education organization. In other words, the, her organization put together groups of builders, 10, 12 builders from different locations in the country, brought them together in a group to, to co-teach each other under the guidance of a facilitator. A lot of guys speak very well of her group and think they've learned a lot from participating in the groups that she sponsors for a fee, of course. She wrote an article talking about the importance of marketing. marketing. I read the article. And I, I analyzed the numbers in it very carefully. And it became abundantly clear that the marketing program she was recommending was going to cost more than the net profit on the jobs that she said it was going to bring in. I wrote her a long letter about that. I never heard back. Um, years and years later, I came across a... Um, a little blurb from her posted somewhere on the web. I don't remember where it was. And she w- in which she was extolling <laughs> my results, uh, the degree of financial freedom I enjoyed and the joy I got from life and so forth. And I made me smile. Um, so I'm thinking maybe she decided it wasn't a bad idea to take on overhead very carefully and monitor the cost benefit results. I see people all the time I've, I've watched this for years now, taking on heavy overhead costs because they are told that's what you're supposed to do. Your accountant tells you you don't have a real business because you're working out of your home. That's absurd. I've always worked out of my home. I don't want to spend an hour a day. That's 30 hours, a, 20 hours a month, 250 hours a year. 240 hours a year, six full work weeks, driving back and forth to work. What do you do that for? If you can, if your home will accommodate your office. Now, given, given virtual tools, you can run a large construction company out of your home. To, to drive that point across, let me tell you something that I was astonished to learn. Clayton DeCorn. Clayton DeCorn is the extraordinary editor-in-chief of the Journal of Light Construction. He runs four magazines, Journal of Light Construction, Remodeling. Journal of Light Construction is a great magazine. Remodeling is not worth a damn. Tools of the Trade, and I think there's one other. He, he has a staff of editors and web builders and technicians and, of course, a, a vast stable of authors that he calls upon. And he runs this whole thing out of a corner of his living room in his 800 square foot condo in New York City with his two little children frolicking around his feet. If you can run four magazines out of the corner of your home, you can, you can run a construction company. All the people you need can be working remotely. If you wanna grow a big company, which I never did, never interested me, um, you can grow it with virtual services. You don't need to buy a big fancy office and stock it up with on-site accounting specialists. You can hire great accountants who work in Montana for half of what it will cost you to pay them to work here in San Francisco, for example. You can get all the services you need, all the office supports you need remotely. If there's any benefit of this damn virus we're experiencing now is that it is really teaching us how much we can get done virtually. 
So did I answer the question you asked? I forget. Yeah. <laughs> I got carried away there. Well, you did. I just, I want to, I want to sharpen the point a little bit. So uh, we've talked about office. So I agree. That's on the chopping block. Fancy trucks should be on the chopping block in my opinion as well. You and I are in agreement on that. What else, what else should be put under the microscope of examination here? And we're looking at cutting overhead. Shop. Um, builders don't need a shop. A long years ago, I read a book called, I'm struggling to get the name of it. It may come to me. The guy who wrote it is a guy named Mitchell. He went bankrupt and he decided that having been bankrupt, it was his calling to tell guys how to run a construction company, which wouldn't go bankrupt. He had a wonderful description of a shop for a builder. Um, the, the description was a shop is a place where you store stuff that, that you saved that you're never going to use that you take out once a year to, to look at and then put back in so you can take it out again the next year to look at it again <laughs> and, and think once again, well, I might use this sometime. I, won't, I better not throw it away. You don't need a shop unless you were ca- unless you got a cabinet building operation attached to your construction company, which in itself is a very dubious um, business call. Um, you just don't. I mean, you, you set up, whenever you have a, jo- a job, you set up your office and your, and your storage on site. And if you've got some materials left when the job is over, unless it's very expensive hardware, um, you just give it away. You may have a very small storage area where you keep Simpson hardware that you can forward into a f- future job. Yep. I ran my company out of a nine foot by eight foot by 14 foot high barn. I built in my backyard. That's 72 square feet. And I was able to keep in that little little space made out of recycled materials, by the way, equipment enough to staff to, you know, to support three different job sites. Um, so excessive shop and storage. I was I was down at my friend Mike's office and shop recently before he retired as this big shop and storage area. And it's totally empty. I mean, hundreds of square feet, and there was one table saw sitting in it. Well, that's good because the tools are out on the job where they should be. And that's You don't need to have them stored in a shop. You don't need a lot of material you're never going to use stored in a shop, by and large. You can, you can store equipment with very, very um, cost-effectively. The, the, the business, the most beautiful business setup I've ever seen that a contractor and set up is down in Oakland. Um, I can never remember the guy's name. He's an incredibly skilled builder. He runs a small company, about three jobs at a time. He dug out a space under his house, built in it an, an, an office. There are basically two parts of the office, uh, an area with a computer where, you know, accounts can be handled and bill, receivables and payables and so forth and correspondence and email. And then a, a bigger space where plans can be spread out and takeoffs accomplished for estimates and estimates produced. He's also got his, all his tools there. He built a big space for his tools I mean, it's not, well, it's not that big. It's maybe 10 by 20. It's long and narrow. And on each side of the space are shelves. And stacked on the shelves in a very orderly, well-organized fashion are all his power tools, lots of them. He's actually, he got an old safe door and installed it to this tool space. All of his workers who've been with him a long time, so they're completely trusted, know the combination of the safe, and they can go in and out and draw tools as they like. He's very, very efficient, very Elegantly efficient, elegantly frugal, 
I like, I like frugal, I like elegant frugality. And I think that's how you make money and that's how you achieve financial freedom. What else can be knocked off the chopping block? Yeah, excessive shop along with excessive office, excessive software. I mean, there is this miraculous thing called Microsoft. There's, this, they have a, there's a company up in Seattle. Uh, you probably just about everybody listening has heard of it, right? For a hundred bucks, you can buy on a disc if you've got an Apple computer or for I think 10 bucks a month subscription rate, something like that. I, I don't have the exact numbers here on the tip of my tongue. You can buy their Word, Excel, et cetera, et cetera, Office Suite. And as far as I can tell, that software will do everything you need to do as a builder. Uh, you don't need to buy some expensive specialized estimating software. It will never be as powerful as the Excel spreadsheet and as powerful and as flexible and as much in your command as the Excel spreadsheet you can build for yourself. And I'm going to put in a plug for myself here. In my book, I teach guys how to build an Excel spreadsheet and how to get the resources they need, very low cost, to build an Excel spreadsheet. And I think anybody who's willing to bear down and work hard can build a really powerful Excel estimating spreadsheet for themselves in about 30 or 40 hours. Now, a lot of guys will choose instead to spend hundreds, even thousands of dollars every year for a 40-year career to rent their estimating spreadsheet. If, if they want to do an, a valuable exercise, they should, should sit down and see what investing that money in a small cap index fund would produce in the way of wealth at point of retirement if they were to do that, to make that investment instead of spending their money on their unnecessarily expensive software. I think, I think overly costly software is a, is, a, is a huge waste of money. I know there's some special packages out there that guys are raving about these days. Honestly, I don't know enough about them yet to, to be sure they're not worth buying, but I, I'm going to take a quick look for my next book and, and you know, render an opinion. I, I'm gonna, I'll name them. I mean, it's, it's um, co-construct, and what's the other one called? Builder Trend. Guys, tell me what they do with them. And uh, I'm scratching my head. What do you need another layer of software to take care of those tasks? Office will do the job. You don't need to be spending that money. You need to be building your way toward financial freedom. Because when you achieve financial freedom, you can, you can continue to build. You can continue to build, build businesses if you prefer Hamburger stands to building at that point, become a hamburger stand owner, a McDonald's owner instead of a, a general contractor. But once you've got financial freedom, being in business is a lot more fun. So get there. Don't build up overhead, which will slow your path toward financial freedom down. That's my take. That yeah. was the path I traveled and I, I just thank God I did. Because I've seen guys, I'm seeing guys right now, my age, my peers, who are scared to death because they have built these very large, very elaborate, not very large companies, good sized companies with very elaborate systems and very heavy overhead. And they're remembering, excuse my language, the hell of anxiety that they went through during the last great recession. And they were assuming they'd never have to go through that again. And they're just gonna run their businesses for a while longer and reap the benefits and harvest the money. And lo and behold, this coronavirus thing strikes. And this coronavirus thing, we don't know where it's gonna take us. But 
I was listening to Ray Dalio the other night. Ray Dalio, as, as you know, Jared, is, is an extraordinary hedge fund manager. Yep. With a, with a, 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 a very simple way of speaking that delivers awesomely intelligent perspectives on the forces at work in the world economy. And Ray is not predicting, but he suggests that we may very well be going into a period akin to 1930 to 1945, far worse than the Great Recession of, that we just went through 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So you don't want a high overhead operation going into something like that. You don't want to be in a position where you have not built financial freedom if you had a chance to do so, because you may not get another chance. Well, now that you brought up Ray, I'm a huge fan of Ray Dalio. He's, a, he's wonderful. He's got a... Um, a 30 minute video on YouTube about how the economic engine works that everybody who's listening to this should go watch if they haven't already. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and just follow his work. I'm sure he's got a newsletter and he's on social media as well because he is, yeah, he's a very philosophical mind that uh, also arrives at very simple, practical conclusions that, that end up being genius. So, so now I got to ask you, all right, that sounds like really bad news coming from somebody who I really respect. <laughs> it's bad what, news, man. What, it's, a little, uh, it's a little frightening. What did, did he, did he follow that vein of thought and offer kind of what he thought was the, any sort of silver lining in here? No, Not, he was, okay. it was an interesting, <laughs> interesting interview. I mean, he was being interviewed by some talking head, you know, you know, some, some guy with a $300 haircut. <laughs> I think of those guys. And, um, and of course the guy wanted him to answer the glib questions that the viewers were sending in, you know, what stocks would you buy? How long is it going to last? He wouldn't go there. He wouldn't go there. He, he talked about the, um, the forces at work in the international economy that are very threatening. Uh, I can run, run. I mean, I can, I can certainly summarize some of what he said for you. It's probably mixed up in my mind with things that I see for myself, but I don't think what he was commenting on and what I would see for myself are that different, actually. Um, first of all, there are countries going bankrupt already, and more of them are going to go bankrupt. Their businesses going bankrupt already. I've got a couple of guys who've called me for consulting who are desperately trying to figure out a way to keep their businesses alive. One of them actually owns a car repair shop. The other's a general contractor. They're right on the edge. And, and frankly, I don't think any advice I've got can give them is going to keep them from going over the edge if this thing doesn't lift much more quickly than any predictions call for it to lift. Um, so we've got this bankruptcy. And the thing about bankruptcy is, according to one estimate, I really can't speak to the reliability of it, but it, it doesn't sound wildly off. Every time a company goes bankrupt, it causes 30 other companies to go bankrupt. Every time a country goes bankrupt, it puts tremendous stress on the economic viability of other countries. So we've got that. We've got the bankruptcy scenario coming up. We've got a virus that um, we do not know how to control, that if left to its own, left to take its own path, that is with no effort to, to manage it, via social distancing and shutting of businesses and so on, would kill 10 million Americans, according to the most reliable estimates we have. Um, so what happens to an economy that's just been knocked flat by bankruptcy, um, that has seen its consumers um, 
you know, lose their wealth to the extent they had it stored up because of, of tremendous uh, crashes in asset value. What happens to an economy that goes that far down? Does it get back up easily? Never has before. I mean, we're looking to the Fed for help. I certainly am. My next door neighbor is a highly placed officer in the Fed. And I get to talk to him a little bit about what, what he's doing. And those guys are doing their desperate best to save the economy, but understand something about what they're doing. They are just backfilling the hole that's getting dug. And their backfill is only partial. They are not creating economic vitality. They're trying to throw out, you know, life preservers. I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, Jared. You've been in banking. So that's, that's kind of, the, and that's more or less the scenario that, that Ray put out there, that we're, you know, that we're building up staggering debts and debt depresses the economy. There's an, what is the estimate that for every, I, I forget, um, some trillions of dollars of debt, you knock off one to two percentage points of, in the, in, of gross domestic product growth. Well, we only have two percentage points of gross domestic product growth. So what's it gonna, what's it gonna take in the way of debt to bring us down to zero? Probably not that, perhaps not that, I shouldn't say probably, perhaps not that much more. Um, there are gonna be all kinds of, of, uh, of uh, hits to wealth effect. Now we, we, we small volume general contractors, um, we're very um, dependent on wealth effect because if we're in the residential area, um, or any other for that matter, I would think, but I, residential is the one I know, we're very dependent upon relatively high net worth clients. And they tend to build those fancy remodels at, you know, those $40,000 bathrooms, those $80,000 bathrooms, those 100000 to $150,000 kitchens, that big master bedroom bath addition, that new big house. They build it because they're feeling rich, because they've seen their stock portfolio jump sky high, as it did until the close of 2019, um, reaching a dangerous level, I might say. But when, the, when that value, when that wealth suddenly evaporates, they get scared and they, and they cancel contracts. They don't just not do their projects that they're dreaming of. They'll cancel contracts for a job that was supposed to start tomorrow, the day before it starts. I remember that happening to my builder friends in 2008. Suddenly, their contracts were just canceled. They had no work. Um, so we're going we're gonna to see wealth effect clobbered, and that's going to take us down hard, too, as builders especially. Yeah, so we're, we're nearing the end of the interview here, but I, I want to... I want to end it on a note of opportunity, especially uh, since I know that that's going to be a portion of what your your book is about, because I'm with you. I think that we could have some dark times ahead, um, but I want to I want to give our audience. Being let, me just, as, let me just slip something in here. I'm yeah. not making a prediction. I'm trying to pass on one of the of the credible levels of prediction I heard. I've also heard predictions that suggest a softer landing than that. That's a very dark one, very, very dark. Um, but you know, any builder needs to be ready always for these dark moments. And the way you, you make yourself ready for those dark moments is by being an overhead vigilante. And also I might stress by getting really good at estimating and bidding. One, one good use of this downtime to builders experience now, get together some resources 
and learn how to, and build a really good system for bidding and a really good system for estimating. They're not the same thing. And you need to be really good at both of them. And the tougher the economy is, the better you need to be at both of them. Okay, I interrupted you, Jared. Sorry, you want to wrap it up. Go ahead. No, I, th I think that's a really good point. So how do we navigate a really tough time, a really potentially dark time, which by the way, yeah, let's be pragmatic. Nobody knows, but in the event of no. a bunch of very different potential outcomes, how do you prepare? Well, uh, you got to prepare for the, uh, the dark possibilities as well. So what does that look like? Cutting overhead. That's been the theme of our conversation today. And I completely agree with that. Getting good at estimating and bidding so that you can help protect your margins. Absolutely. I'm sitting here chewing on, on any others. Uh, I wrote an article about, about this a, a while ago called bulletproofing for downturns, which you and I have, have discussed before. Uh, you've right. got your own, your own opinions. So can you think anything else you want to throw into the mix about what we yeah. can do? Uh, I think um, a new thought I have, which I, I hope is going to hold up. I'll put it out here. Guys might be able to help me out with it. I think you need to work on managing time overhead as well as dollar overhead. You need to learn to be efficient with your use of time. Um, one way to learn to be efficient with use of time is break cell phone addiction. I mean, there are a lot of, I've been around a lot of builders of late who cannot resist answering their cell phone when it rings, even if they're in the middle of a vital conversation. Um, that's one way to learn how to, you know, manage time overhead, bear down on those cell phone habits. Uh, but there are lots of ways. Um, I like to tell the little, what I call the parable of the pencil. I was taught once by a, uh, a very good carpenter not to sharpen my carpenter's pencil to a point, sharpen it into more like a chisel form because he pointed out to me, you'll be able to use three planes on that chisel to, to, to score marks with. And therefore your sharpening will get you will last for three times as long as uh, sharpening the pencil to the point. Now that doesn't sound like, a big deal, but you figure a carpenter sharpens his pencil about what 20 times a day, I'm guessing, 100 times a week. Uh, that would be 5,000 times a year. And how, and how many seconds does it take him to sharpen it? You've suddenly saved a whole bunch of hours. You got a crew of, say, six guys saving 30,000 pencil sharpenings a year. You've had you saved some manpower. And there are tons of little time efficiencies that you can uh, put into place that are, you know, that the parable of the pencil can inspire. And they add up, add up. Little things add up to big things. Yeah. Very, very good parable. I like that. Um, all right, David. Well, I'm trying to think if, if I've got anything else to add to the conversation. I think that... Uh, this has been a, for me, this has been exciting because it hits on something that uh, allows us to, you know, we're always so tactical, which we need to be as builders, but this is something that allows us to kind of step back for a second and think about big picture and where we're going. So I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be excited to see your book for that very reason alone. Um, sounds like that's something we we're going to be waiting for another year or two for. Is that correct? Yeah. Now, in the meantime, you know, 
this is this is really shameless a shameless plug for myself but you gave me the opening Do in the it. meantime <laughs> they can buy nail your numbers a path to skill construction estimating and bidding and yep. what and i in that book there are two pages that i i'd like to think are worth the price of admission they're titled somewhat playfully is construction a not-for-profit industry and I explain why it can be seen as such. And I think once you grasp that, that can be a real um, encouragement, let's say, to becoming an overhead vigilante and starting down your path to financial freedom. And there are really two essential things that have to get into gear for you to become financially free, to, free as, a, as, a, as a general contractor, as a, a construction pro of any kind. And that is, uh, you got you to close down your overhead and debt, and um, you got to invest with margin of safety, to quote the great Ben Graham. Yep, that margin of safety, I love Jared, it. Jared, I got to tell you, I got to say this to your listeners. You guys are lucky to have this guy. Jared, put this in the, in the podcast. You're lucky to have this guy. I've been on other podcasts. Jared engages in zero self-promotion. He has a real drive toward public service. He has a really, a matter of fact style, which is delightful for the person on the other end, namely me in this particular day. <laughs> um, we're, we're lucky to have you, Jared. We really are. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Now we got to end it on that. That's, that's the high note. Okay, good. <laughs> that's the if high I, note I finally said something worthwhile, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. That's going to be, that's going to be our advertising promotion for this episode right there. Okay. Uh, no. All right, David. Well, as always, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, we're definitely going to have you back once your book gets a little closer to publication. Well, maybe I'll get a lot of flack and people have come back and, and say, this guy is full of it. Get him on again because he's got to defend himself. <laughs> Maybe that'll happen. No, you're, you're, all, you're always one of our most popular guests because people like the straight shooters. And in this, in this business, there's enough of bullshit that, that flies around. We, we need to hear the, the straight talk, you know. Amen to the, that. So, well, I can shoot straight. Hopefully, I didn't shoot at the wrong target. And, <laughs> and, and, and you, know, you, you know, as I say, these ideas are in development. And I hope they turn out to be reliable. I mean, your encouragement means a lot. I, I think, I mean, you're a, you are a banker. You understand these issues profoundly. And if you think it sounds like what I'm suggesting is somewhat viable, that's very encouraging. Yeah. No, you're, you're on to something. And we're looking forward to seeing it as it comes together. So, David, thank you for coming on. And okay. uh, we'll be in touch soon. Okay. 